Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Joshua Myers, who is the Associate Professor in the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. And Josh is on to discuss his brand new intellectual biography of Cedric Robinson, entitled Cedric Robinson, The Time of the Black Radical Tradition. In this podcast, we discuss the life and times of Cedric Robinson, his travels, his thinking, his teaching among many other things, including Black studies and where we are right now in the field. And so it's going to be a long one, but I really think y'all are going to enjoy it. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. How you doing today? I'm doing fabulous. How are you? Man, as you, as you said to me offline, making it. <laughs> making it. Yes, sir. You know, these, these, yeah, man, writing this dissertation and um, applications and all that stuff, man, you know. And the and the Black History Month just means March first is also rent, and also more applications due. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, man, hey, man, you know, try to get to that ten year line like you, brother. It's a race. It's a race. <laughs> hey, man, for sure, for sure, man. And so, um, once again, man, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, you're a busy dude. You got multiple books, and you know, you're doing talks on on both of them. Um, one of them we'll get to today, man. And so. You know, I'm I'm really interested and excited about this conversation. You know, I saw you in um, in Philly at the at the Robeson House yes. uh, Museum um, was at January, I think it was, and and uh, or December or November or January, actually. Two. <laughs> was it November? Yeah. Damn, it's a minute ago. Yo, time is moving. Yo, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I really thought it was, it was more recent. Um, but but your book, man, it, it's just an amazing an amazing book that I think that. For someone like myself who, you know, did not, um, you know, is very re- is very new to Cedric Robinson, mm-hmm. um, and and your and your book, man, it just really calls our attention to really grapple with his ideas, but also, as you discuss in the book, 
take them on honestly and not just, you know, citationally, right. um, as, as you say, man. And so um, can you speak to us, you know, to begin, because I, I know you, you are, you're a writer, you know, you're just a writer, like, boom, you, you're many things, but one of the things you're a writer. Yes. And so one of the things I really enjoy um, now, shout out to Dr. Vanessa Holden, who started this uh, for her book, Surviving Southampton. Um, can you, to begin, please read a short passage from your book that you feel exemplifies the full essence of the entire book. Sure. Which is, you know, something that uh, writers probably would struggle with. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Cause you think everything you write is important <laughs> and that's the essence. In fact, <laughs> I mean, that's for me the standard, right? Don't make, don't waste a sentence. Don't waste any sentences. Like every sentence should be, you know, geared towards encompassing and, and um, manifesting, if you will, what the book is about, but for the sake of the task, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll begin. Years later, Cedric would famously assert that it was never my intent to exhaust the subject. In lieu of any kind of resolution, Cedric offered a sense of the stakes involved in reorienting how we perceive radical thought. As a tradition that had, quote, not been conscious of itself as a tradition, end quote. It had the advantages of no sacred texts or leaders who had been exalted over the masses, no dogmatic theory to discipline movement. But the lack of awareness of that tradition had also had a disadvantage, what Cedric called the fractioning of African people. The world created by racial capitalism was, was and always remains in its final violent clash. The clock of the modern world was and is still ticking down. Cedric believed that our lives were at stake. It is still true. But what was also true was that African peoples could play a role in forestalling disaster. He writes, physically and ideologically, and for rather unique historical reasons, African peoples bridged the decline of one world order and the eruption, we may surmise, of another. It is a frightful and uncertain space of being. If we are to survive, we must take nothing that is dead and choose wisely from among the dying, end quote. A Marxist ideology imbued with a racialist order that contaminates its analytic could not be a total theory of liberation the black radical tradition may not either. But as a people's cultural tradition, its elements suffused black responses to oppressions across time and space. And for Cedric, it provided black liberation struggles with their own sense of authority. It was not up to, quote, one people to be the solution or the problem, end quote. But a tradition formed in consequence of and in opposition to the very crystallization of the modern world was one, quote, part of the solution, end quote. And in what was an important theme of all of his work, Cedric's non-ending proclaimed, quote, for now, we must be as one. Man, 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 that, that's, that's profound, man. And you know, as, as you said before, you, you definitely ain't waste no sentence on that one. Um, and, <laughs> Thank and, you. And throughout the book. And, and and one of the things before before I ask you why you chose that, one of the things I really appreciated about your book in terms of just writing, and we'll get to that 
at the very end of the um, discussion, but um, the way you ended a lot of your paragraphs, I just really enjoy. Like, I just, you know, so, so for me, um, as someone who's writing, uh, who, who's in the early, early stages of uh, dissertation writing, I really appreciate reading your, your work um, because it provides um, something to aspire to in terms of um, of, of ability, but also in terms of also just, just basic style, um, that, you know, as a, as a trained historian, some, so, a, a discipline that you, uh, uh, <laughs> it's it, you, you and Cedric, uh, chastise it. And I love it. I, I really enjoy it, uh, throughout it. I, I was, I was laughing throughout it, um, that, that it does provide a, a different space, um, as well. And so, with that said, man, um, so thank you for reading that particular passage. Why did you choose this one? Well, this is one where most people will identify with Black Marxism as the text that brought them to Robinson's work. And a lot of people also quote uh, the quote around him not um, feeling that it was his job to exhaust the subject. Um, but if you make it to the end of the book, which is where the latter section of quotes that I read from came from, he is talking about the urgency of the period that saw the publication of that text, a world that in many ways um, sort of began what we have inherited in 2022. Um, so the global order and, you know, the decline of the West as some sort of standard for the rest of humanity, um, largely put in place by anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles across, across Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also the logic of the West as this orderly, stable, political project, we know is starting to break in people's minds. We know it was never orderly, but in people's minds it was. And it's starting to break because of revolutionary movements in the 1970s and 80s. And now what we've inherited is the fallout of all of that. And so both the now and the then, to me, offer a context for understanding his not solution, but his one part of the solution, which is this sort of inherent Black response to Western oppressions, which is really what the book is about. I mean, Black Marxism makes more sense if we look at the subtitle as the title, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. And sometimes in our conversations about what this book has done, and is doing, that part seems to get left out. And it's left out largely because, I think, to talk about this sort of oneness, right, either gets dismissed as essentialist or impossible, right? It's impossible possible for us to be one, right? It's impossible for us to come together and have a unified political response. And what Robinson shows us that many times in many places, Africans, African people's sense of what required, what liberation required, right? 
comes out of this desire to be one. But to be one is to also recognize that we are equally one. In other words, each individual can be an individual in unity, in the context of unity, in the context of the basic thrust of what communities exist for, which is to ensure each other's survival. To me, what other value can we place in our political movements other than this desire to ensure that we all have an equal chance, an equal possibility for survival, which is what African people bring to this conversation of radicalism. And that part, to me, has always been inspiring because we did not need a theory for that. It was a lived experience. It was life. If you look at how we define life as African people, how we situate our relationship between our lives and the cosmos, we just trying to be one with everything, right? I'm connected to the universe. I'm connected to the, the earth. I'm connected to nature and we're connected to each other. Now, how do we live through a recognition of that connectedness? And we know the thing that, that corrupts that connectedness is Western modernity. And so to me, the natural response to not getting too much into biological essentialism, of course, but the natural response is to go back to a people's culture and figure out what's their sense of how to be and how to live. And that's really what Black Marxism is about. That's what Cedric Robinson's work is about. And I read that passage because I want us to remember that. I want to remind us that it's about a people, right? If you look at the preface, to Black Marxism, he says it. This book is about a people's struggle. Now, who are the people, right? Another part of the book, chapter five, I think. I'm sorry, chapter, um, either chapter four or six, I can't remember right now, when he talks about um, this question of slavery. I think it's chapter six. He says, you know, we, we talked about the idea that um, historians have reduced enslaved Africans to... Um, you know, points on a ledger, all right? These sort of cargoes, right? And then he says, the idea that we should continue to rescue our humanity from such a, um, such a, a reduction, to me, is not the fight anymore. He says the fight is actually not to say that we were human. The fight is to say what kinds of humans are we? What sort of people are we? And to me, that continues to be the fight. Because as much as we struggle against the continuation of imperialisms and colonialisms as a structural concern, we also have to realize that, well, our ancestors also struggled against these things, and they struggled against these things in a particular way. To me, this is the thrust of his work. And so in 2022, you've come to that particular interpretation. But you haven't always known Robinson. So can you tell us a bit about your introduction to Robinson's work? Sure. So now as a foremost scholar of black studies, <laughs> Dr. Josh Myers. So it starts as an undergraduate at Howard University. Um, I did my undergraduate work at Howard University. I was not a black studies major, but I took about six black studies courses. Um, we were required to take at least one part of the beautiful struggle, which I talk about in my other book. Um, students decided that not only we would create Black Studies in the 60s, but in the 80s, right, there's a Black Studies movement again to make it a required course. 
And so now I think some students see it on their schedule and like, wait a minute, why do we have to take this course? It's not in my majors to, you know, general ed. And no, the students in eight and the eighty said you have to take it. Ain't no administrator. <laughs> so um, I, always, I always say that, right? So we have this required course, but I took it five more times. <laughs> I took Black Studies five more times, and I was introduced uh, by one of my teachers, Greg Carr, to a book that he uses in that intro course, Black Movements in America. And I've never heard anybody talk about the United States the way that Cedric Robinson talks about the United States. Um, the book starts off saying that there are only there were three uh, revolutions, right? Um, in terms of the American Revolution, I said, what, what is he talking about? And the third revolution he mentions that was Black people versus everybody. I was like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. It was the way that he narrated the civil rights struggle. It was the way that he talked about the Nadir era and all of these different things that filled in the blanks in terms of my understanding of our, our history. And of course, um, later on, I'm introduced to the more expansiveness of Black Marxism. And it takes me a while to actually read it. I think everybody may have had this experience. Uh, you see the text and you're intimidated by the text. I put it down and I picked it back up once I got to graduate school at Temple. And it was the right timing. I'll never forget this because all of my friends were out on New Year's Eve um, 2010, <laughs> going into 20, 2011. And, or maybe it was 2009 going into 2010. And I'm in New York with all of my friends. They went out. I'm sitting at their coffee table, at my friend's coffee table, reading Black Marxism to, to bring in the new year. <laughs> and I guess that just sort of defines <laughs> how that, that, that's, that's struck nice, and messed up I was by this particular text. Mm-hmm. Um, messed up because the expectations that I had about who Black people were, were generated out of a disciplinary and an epistemological frame that said that everything that we were doing in human history was ultimately leading us to becoming more and more equal Americans. And that was the frame. And I didn't know, even in Black movements in America, I didn't know how extensive this breaking of that frame that Robinson was engaged in, uh, in his work. And so... By then reading him, I was able to reread Du Bois and reread other people like Frederick Douglass and others. Um, and I'm also also reading uh, Pan-Africanist thinkers. So I'm already reading uh, people like uh, Robert Subukwe out of South Africa and Steve Biko and others. But Robinson gave me a frame for thinking about this and the Black radical tradition helps me to see these people in, in a expansive context that they are united by you know, this desire to preserve the cultural integrity and autonomy of African peoples across the landscape. And it was only a minority that wanted to be Americans, right? (laughs) So that, um, and it's, 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 you know, is being taught the book. It's also engaged in the book of my own in graduate study. But it's also then, as I said, a few other places, I can now see my own family anew. I can now see my own community anew. And that's the most powerful thing, because mm-hmm. especially, you know, coming from, you know, that first year experience, second year experience in the HBCU, and you get these new ideas and you come home and it's like, why y'all still eating pork? And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Robinson's work is like, 
No, look at your community as part of this continuation and this genealogy of black radical struggle. And there's no other, There were, for me, there was no other, um, maybe Sterling Stuckey, but there was no few other people, models for that, to help me see my own family as connected to this, as opposed to somehow conservative or reactionary, right? Robinson's work, as June Jordan once said, restores the family. It restores our sense of connectedness in our community because we were all struggling, in other words, to realize ourselves, he says, um, like he says in terms of order. And I saw that now. I could see the ancestors through a more, um, a clearer, a clearer lens. And that's a beautiful thing, once you can return to your family and see them, right? Because too often we are shown or we are given an image of radicalism that says this is what it looks like. And Robinson mm-hmm. is saying that, no, it is the struggle of Africans to stay on this planet that's radicalism. And I could see that in my own community and my own family by taking stock of the way that Robinson writes about how the struggles to restore African humanity in the wake of slavery. And to me, that's important too, because we both share, um, you know, well, you are actually from my family is, you know, grandparents and such uh, from, from South Carolina. Um, and so, you know, to me, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic. Um, I remember it was last night, um, there was someone who talked about, you know, folks not knowing about the Gullah Wars, um, for, for instance, and just thinking about um, the, the importance of the struggle of, of multiple struggles um, in, you know, South Carolina and the Carolinas generally, David Walker, you know, get, gets, uh, you get to mention in, in the biography. And so um, just helps me to think about the communities uh, from which my family descends. Uh, from the Cape Fear River region of Wilmington all the way down to Beaufort, uh, South Carolina. And so um, I, I really appreciate you for, for, you know, for bringing South Carolina into the mix. You know what I'm saying? Well, you well know, I, we I should expect, we should expect. Robinson writes about black radicalism in such a way. And he talks, he has such a geographical range that we should expect mm-hmm. now that there was radicalism everywhere black people were, Right. And that's not that's mm-hmm. not the way black resistance was talked about before, for me at least. It was talked about as exceptional, right? Nat Turner and Demar Vici, these are except exceptions. But when you look at the way that Robinson narrates these stories, starting off in, in Mexico and then going to Brazil, then Colombia, and then to Jamaica, then to Cuba, and then to Haiti, and then to South Carolina, and then to New York, and then to Virginia, then back to Brazil, and then and then to Africa. It's like, wait a minute, where did we not resist? Nowhere. Therefore, there's something in South Carolina that I need to revisit. And what I did was I looked at the archives and I looked at some of the newer books. They just started talking. It's ironic because they just started talking about um, the scholars of Maroonish just started writing about uh, Maroonish in South Carolina at the same time that I'm first reading Black Marxism. And so it's like, okay, duh, I might be a descendant of these people, right? And that might explain why my grandma cooks rice the way that she cooks rice, because you got to feed more than just the two people in your in your family. You got to feed the whole community because ultimately we can't allow somebody to go hungry because we are one, <laughs> which is a principle 
of the same maroons who decided that they're going to plant rice in these swamps in secret and then cook it and then disseminate it across these ponds to people who could not have, who could not cook rice because they were in a different section of the swamp. And so these values, right? We call it, you know, you might, you might call it, you know, the community, family, but they're also revolutionary and grounded in, in this history of resistance. And just in that one example, my grandma cooking rice for everybody, I was able to connect with something that I knew growing up to an actual revolutionary culture and value and value system that had to be present in order for Africans to actually survive slavery. And and that to me is important, especially when um, you know, you, you talked about um the disciplinary nature and also just thinking about the time frame at which you came into knowing of black Marxism, but also going back to the early eighties when it was actually published, because I think that what you talk about it was at a particular, um, excuse me, an, an inflection point in terms of, you know, scholarship on the history of slavery um, in the post-civil rights movement um, academy. It, w- it was very different. And so for him, really, his ideas are obviously, Robinson's ideas are obviously like revolutionary, just like isolated for time, but also based upon the historiographic focus um, in terms of the history of writing about the history of slavery um so it's, it's, so it's, to it's me, interesting uh, you, you yeah. mentioned that because fogel and ingerman come out with 76 time on the cross um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and robinson is thinking about that as he's engaging with like world systems theory um mm-hmm. and then uh leslie howard owens's book the species of property um the, the slave community by blasting game and a few others he mentions mm-hmm. And he's saying ultimately that these are important moments. These are important markers for something. Um, But he's also saying that, look, the execution of the project of restoring Black people's humanity, that's just one part of this. The other part is what's the connection between their humanity and the cultures of resistance that we find? How did they come up with this? Right? How did they see themselves in relationship to the structural? Because it's funny, world systems theory is so imbued with structural critique, right? We have to look at systems, 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 systems. And Robinson is saying, yes, but people exist in systems. Who are the people? Right? And what is their attitude toward the system? And to me, that just that resonated uh, very deeply. And I think. You also begin to see with um, Sterling Stuckey's Through the Prism of Folklore, Vincent Harding's There is a River, um, the development of um, more and more and more and more studies, especially now we see Jennifer Morgan and Jessica Marie Johnson and others talking about the extension of these Black women's revolutionary and radical um, attitudes towards the system. That break was really important to make that break with the notion that we can't recover their ideas, their value systems, their ways of knowing is extremely important. And I won't say that Robinson uh, is the only person, uh, but he was certainly one such person who was reading uh, the historians of slavery during that period. And he's pushing this sort of momentum to be able to have what we have now, which is a more complete and complex understanding 
of the community of enslaved people. And not just in the United States of America, but in the, in the entire diaspora. And I was uh, trying to look for, there's a part in the book that I'm looking for where you actually uh, reference a, um, I think a paper or a conversation where uh, Robinson is actually um, pretty much big upping uh, Jennifer Morgan, who ironically is uh, following you in, in, uh, in, in the queue of my conversation. So um, I, I interviewed her actually on Friday about her new book, uh, Reckoning with Slavery. And so it's just interesting just thinking about like the, the timing and also, you know, some of the discussions in terms of how people um, also receive Black Marxism. But, um, but I think too, you know, I'm very interested in, in this other question too, um, moving a little bit further. We can come back to this as well, because to me, this is, as someone who's writing, actually, no, let me, let me put that uh, next question away for a second. I think one of the things that's interesting too is also um, as, as historians, as, as a historian who is being trained right now, I am being trained to focus on a particular community, a particular space, and just quote unquote become an expert. The antithesis of really what Robinson, you know, is you're explaining about Robinson at the end of the book, but you talked about his um, geographic range. And that really struck me in terms of who I aspire to be as um, as a chronicler of the past, um, as opposed to just simply a historian, which I think is, you know, you can kind of pivot throughout that. But um, what you what you just mentioned to me about the geographic range of Robinson to, to go from, you know, pretty much chronicling 400 years of of, of black resistance to me that like, you know, that's incredible. And also can go to a question that I have later about um, Robinson's teaching, because it also seems that which his teaching also his ability to write these books are based upon his his deep um, the, the 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 theory of teaching, the theory of pedagogy that he has. Um, so so actually, I'm, I'm sorry, I wasn't planning to do this, but can you talk more about that if you don't mind? Well, every every especially his latter books come out of his teaching experiences, and he was he he only taught in well, he mostly taught in black studies, um, and he which means he had to has to has to have this range. Like in black studies, you can't limit yourself to your own specialization because we're talking about a discipline that's trying to move outside of boundaries, it's outside of structures and, and strictures and things of that nature. And so I look at his reading lists, for instance, going back to the 1970s, when he's teaching at University of Michigan, um, he's teaching at Binghamton, and he has the ability to bring up um, in conversation um, a James Baldwin um, as essayist and, and as novelist, and at the same time, uh, Emma Carker Brawl as revolutionary uh, theorist and and then to connect this to um, Hegel and to Marx, and then from there to connect it to classical political theory, and then from there to delve into uh, structural anthropology, and from there to bring in the critique of um, art and film, and to have those things be a coherent whole. 
um, means it's not just, you know, your interest, it's that you're reading all of this stuff. And so to me, what you see in Black Marxism, and Elizabeth Robinson also always talks about we need to make a concordance to Black Marxism. She's been trying, and she's been talking about this since the 90s. It's just his reading at the end of the day. He's reading everything. He's reading all different disciplines, all different areas, all different geographical um, studies, um, stuff from all different geographical locations. And he's synthesizing it based on what unifies those particular texts. So that's part of it. Um, but the teaching of it is real too. Like his later books, Black Movements in America starts off as we need a textbook for Black Studies 1, right? Um, so how do we t- how do we introduce the study of the Black experience? And you see that happening in, in Black Movements in America, but it's his, his, it's his slant on it, right? Um, and Anthropology of Marxism starts off as lectures, right? He's teaching a course, he's teaching courses on Marx and Marxist theory and, and, and radical politics. But because he's read about so many different um, European contexts, um, he, going back to the 60s, he begins to look at Marxism as a broader project, meaning that what Marxism, what we're calling Marxism is the larger history of socialism that preceded Marx. And so he starts writing about that. And I guess his colleagues realize that, wait, this should be a book because nobody actually takes this perspective when it comes to understanding this question around Marxism. And so all of that is united in his approach, the reading, the teaching, and then the writing. And that's actually um, something for me that I do as well. Anything that I'm actually writing, my students know about. <laughs> um, because I'm assigning, I'm assigning the same stuff. We're just talking about the same stuff in class. Sometimes I'm sharing. I actually shared my last book proposal. Um, with my students, because at the end of the day, if it's not useful for them, it's no point for me writing. There's no point in me writing it. Um, and so I, I won't say I learned that from Robinson, but it's something that I also find uh, res- um, I find resonant in my own practices. But also the just reading everything part. I mean, I, th- I think that's something that we have to bring back, right? You know, we, we can't just say I'm focused on this one time and place and, you know, because what ends up happening, and this this ha- this has ped- especially in black studies, it has pedagogical implications, right? Because if you hyper specialize, and then you get the opportunity to teach a graduate seminar in Africana studies, right? Your students are not going to share that hyper specialization, and so you need to be need to be able to talk about what's new in um, historiography and what's new in queer theory and what's new in literary criticism, because that's what your students are going to need from you. And so part of what we got to bring back, I think, is people just got to read more <laughs> and they have to read things that are different than what they specialize in or different even what they're interested in. Because as new ideas emerge, you don't want to get caught, <laughs> right? Not knowing and being in a place where you can offer your own perspective on something. So Robin, the Robinsons together, both Cedric and Elizabeth, they read with students going all the way back to their graduate student days. Their house was the house where you come to read and talk, right? They had study groups around stuff that, that was very painful, like Hegel. They had actually read Hegel together at, at night, right? This is very painful in many respects. Weber. <laughs> um, and of course, what it, 
was what was clear is why we were reading it, right? We're not just reading it because we are nerds, right? We're reading it because at some point and at some level, we have to be clear about something. And so that practice followed them to the University of Michigan. People told me about how they would go to borders and get one book because everybody couldn't afford to read the book. And then they would take the one book and then go to the Xerox machine and they would disseminate the book. <laughs> Every, now everybody has a copy. Now we can actually read together. And then they would go to the Robinson's house and they would have beer and red beans and rice. And they would read that book together. And then they'll come back the next morning and Robinson would bring in somebody like Robert F. Williams to give a lecture on it. Or they would bring in someone like uh, Grace, James and Grace Lee Boggs to do a lecture on it. But what preceded the lecture? We're not hearing, we're not just happy to see uh, Robert F. Williams because we just read all night to be prepared to receive what Robert F. Williams has to say. So it's actual engagement. That practice follows them for the rest of his life. And so they knew that the text was important, but the text alone wasn't important. The text as a project and a continuation of struggle. How do we connect these two prayers together? which is why the reading practice was so critical. It wasn't because I'm just, you know, like I said earlier, I'm just a nerd and love to read everything. No, I'm trying to struggle. We're trying to be free. So let's read this thing because this thing might help us. And and one of the things that I noticed too, um, you, you had actually, um, uh, I guess you had written it before, but you had posted on your social media sites, um, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, four or five uh, part um, piece about, you know, practice and in terms of reading and, and such. And so and I believe, if I remember correctly, one of the one of the um, one of the numbers was actually on reading with groups um, in, in, in community, I believe, is the particular term that you use. And that also it seems also it seems like you um, maybe adopted that practice through your time at Howard, but also through your time mm-hmm. um, learning um, about Robinson. Would, would that be about right? It was something that we did at Howard when I was an undergrad. It was something that shaped mm-hmm. me as an undergrad. Gotcha. And so, okay. So we've talked a lot about the book, but can we take a step back and think, how did you, and I'm asking this with the understanding of what the answer is because of me going to one of your talks, but how did you, get into this opportunity to write this intellectual biography of Cedric Robinson? Because I'm very interested about how this came about. Yeah, so um, there are two strands. The first strand is uh, Polity Press. Polity Press was and is uh, doing a series called Black Lives. That's why the cover has the words Black Lives strewn across the front. Um, I think somebody somebody thought that that was my subtitle, (laughs) which would be an interesting subtitle, Cedric Robinson, Black Lives. Um, but that's actually the that's actually the series title from um, Polity Press, and the premise for them was, "What does Black life have to do with us clarifying the Trump era?" Um, that was the premise, and thankfully, uh, we didn't have to extend the Trump era to, to another term. So, uh, in some in some ways, uh, the direct impetus is no longer there, but it's also always there. Um, we haven't transcended the things that made Trump. Um, Trump was not the originator or the creator of those things. And so we still need to have this particular um, conversation. But as you can see in my introduction, I sort of say that, hey, uh, 
Trump is just the latest iteration of some very dark, very dark times for black people. <laughs> and if you think about the question um, of times, um, this time has always been this time for black people. And so the question becomes, how do we step outside of this particular thinking and create a new kind of time, a new space for black radicalism? to a, a really a renewed space, not a new space, but a renewed space for black radicalism. So that's, that's the one thread, the less important thread. The more important thread is that I was actually um, writing, trying to write my current book um, about four years ago. And I did the Robinson chapter first because um, I had been writing about Robinson because of his transition in 2016. Um, so I did the Robinson chapter first for this current book. Um, current book is called Of Black Study. Hopefully that will be out by the end of this year. Um, amen, amen, yes, amen. Yes, yes. Congratulations in advance. Thank you. Congratulations in advance. You got an open opportunity to come back <laughs> just to let you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so... Just being who I am, I sent a copy of this chapter to Robin D.G. Kelly um, because at that time, Kelly had done all of the kind of biographical research on Robinson's family life um, at that particular point. And that's probably still true. Um, so I just wanted to see if I got those biographical details right. Um, cause they were the backdrop for what I was trying to say about Robinson in this chapter. And so he sends it back and says, yeah, you got it right. <laughs> this is cool. Um, but he said, also says, you know, you probably should do something more. And he indicated that he had been approached by um, someone. He didn't say who to do a full scale biography, but he was not interested in doing it, which of course, to me, I don't know. I still don't know how to, didn't know, I didn't know how to read that. And I still really don't know how uh, to read that other than what he told me and which was, um, it would have been too overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. And he yeah. said this, he's, he's written this in fact, um, to sort of cover the expansiveness um, of a Robinson. So that conversation happened. And then I went back to my Of Black Study book, right? Actually, I went back to my We Over Fight, we Fighting For book. And as I'm literally putting the finishing touches on We Are Worth Fighting For and thinking I'm going to get back to my baby, <laughs> Polity hits me up and says, so... Dr. Kelly said, you might be interested in doing a book on... Well, no, I didn't, never said that. <laughs> <laughs> so it felt like, it felt like, and this is, this is African for me, um, in terms of how African people do things, especially um, people who are older. It felt like an instruction as opposed to a professional suggestion. And I... I you know, me and Robin still haven't really talked about this in depth, but it felt like an instruction, an instruction being something that is passed down to you for you to be able to preserve and give to the next generation. 
That's what it felt like, even if it, even as it didn't come directly from him. So I did take some time. I took about two months um, to uh, consider whether or not I should do it. In those uh, two months, I talked to people. Um, I created a draft proposal, and I kind of put it to the side. Um, but somehow or another, um, through cross purposes, the draft proposal got out, and now it became a fact that I was writing a book on Cedric Robinson when it, when it really wasn't a fact yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, that yeah. that part was kind of frightening, in fact, um, because I hadn't talked to Elizabeth yet. Gotcha. Um, oh, so yeah. Wow. Oh, I, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, so, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that detail. Yeah. So before I signed the contract, um, I reached out to Elizabeth and Elizabeth I, and I started to get to know each other. Um, she, of course, being who she is, being a consummate researcher and a consummate and a moral force in terms of how to do things, she had already done her due diligence um, gotcha. on me before I even talked to her. Um, but after getting essentially her blessing, I signed a contract. Um, and this would have been in August of 2018. I uh, with policy. Policy was really good um, with this and my quirkiness around doing it. Um, you know, for them, their position was it's an intellectual biography. Um, it, as a scholar, you, sh- you sh- shouldn't have to worry about the family's blessing per se. And I'm like, no, I'm a black person. So I have to get the family's blessing. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but everybody was good. You know, everybody from policy was good. The Robinsons embraced me, but also Robinson students embraced me. And so that felt good. And um in even even now, every time I go somewhere to talk about this book, there's a Robinson student there um that I didn't know. <laughs> and so it's, it's really powerful in that sense. But, um, yeah, they um, essentially from August of 2018 or so, um, the pandemic hits two years later, of course, and that began. I actually didn't start writing until 2019. Um, so the pandemic came and that kind of prevented two things from happening. Uh, it prevented me from going to archives and it prevented me from doing interviews in person. Um, thankfully, I got to some before the pandemic. Um, but that happened. And, you know, writing during the pandemic is its own conversation and subject. <laughs> writing a biography where you need archives during the pandemic is its own subject. But I was able to get through it. Um, I did visit um, Elizabeth in August of 2020 during one of the lulls of the pandemic. Um, and by October, I was finished. So that's kind of the, how that process worked. It starts off as something that um, I was doing before, relatedly, and it became a special project um, in the context of me working on this other thing that I was able um, to complete. The advantage was they didn't want a long book. Um so uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. because you know some yeah. some of these biographies be <laughs> OD long, brother. Right. And some of these things right. be four, five hundred. So um the whole series, every book is supposed to be the same amount of pages. Um so they were like it's hard eighty thousand. So for me who you know has sometimes has hypergraphia, 
Um, <laughs> Eighty thousand doesn't is not a, is not a whole lot. So the question became, how do you most efficiently use the eighty thousand, as opposed to whether I can get to the eighty thousand? Um, yeah, and of course yeah. I failed that. So the book is eighty five thousand. There's some things that I just could not cut. Um, I'm yes. glad you didn't. I'm glad you won that battle. Yes. But um, so yeah, that's kind of how it worked. Good man, and and I I really appreciate that detail. And um, you you already answered what I was going to ask for the next one about um your interactions with um Elizabeth Robinson, um. But actually, you know what? I'm going to ask you a, a follow-up on that one. So can you actually discuss a little more about, now that the book is out, um, the interactions that you've had with her, especially with the book um, detailing so much about, you know, their lives and such like that, too. So, you know, have, has she also been able to, uh, you know, give you some thoughts about the book as well, um, if at all? Elizabeth opened up the entire archive of her husband. Mm. Everything. Wow. Um, everything. Everything. Everything that I could get. Wow. Everything that I could get to in three days, I got to. So it was basically, as you as you know, I'm, I didn't take time to read anything while I was there. It was just taking pictures of mm-hmm. literally the whole thing. Um, wow. As I'm there, so it's probably around four thousand or so photos that I took, something like that, something crazy like that. Wow. Um, I get back and I start to read it, um, put it together and read it. And ultimately, being who I am, um, and ask and asking permission to use these things, of course, um, I sent her um, PDFs of everything that I was interested in using, and she was basically one hundred percent behind it, and she supported it. And from there, she also introduced me to people who were close um, to Robinson, and so. Mm-hmm. All day, I'm taking pictures. Within afternoons, I'm conducting interviews. Um, so wow. it was a it was an action packed uh, three days that I spent out there. And after, of course, she read everything. Uh, of course, she marked up some things. She suggested some things, but nothing was, you know, if you don't do this, <laughs> it should be the death of the book, right? <laughs> Yo, gotcha. It, was, gotcha. it wasn't on that level. Some some families are like that, and I would have honored that had she been, you know. But it was nothing. It was more of suggestion. If you want to do it this way, this is a way you could do it. Um, she offered, of course, the deep familial piece too. So you see the um, anytime I talk about um, the children or the family, um, it's because of a conversation that I had with her. Um, sort mm. of the, the, the rhythm and the feel of that conversation is from her. Because uh, all I have were names, right? Yeah. yeah. But if you can sense a personality behind the names, that's because of her. Um, she had provided all the photos um, in the book, some of which have never be, ever been published before. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot more photos, too. That we didn't use, but it's, it's really that's that's a really key part of it. Um, Robinson was also an amateur photographer, so he has his own photos. Um, I mean, yeah, that's just another conversation, but it's it, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that's, yeah, that's dope. She, she then, of course, once the book was published, uh, supported me by mm-hmm. um, telling people that this is out, first of all. Um, she 
you know, they sent her a box of the books and she disseminated the books. Um, she has been part of events. Uh, she was a part of the initial launch event that we did with After World Now Project, which is on YouTube. Um, yes. In, co- in collaboration with the Institute of Race Relations out in the UK. Um, we're going to be doing more events, hopefully one in her native uh, Lebanon. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, snap. One of, one of Cedric's students. Okay. Yeah, one of Robinson's students is out there, uh, Greg Burris. Um, so we might. Okay. We, should, we probably will do that virtually. Um, but okay. Yeah. American University of, um, is it Beirut, I think? Um, yeah. But, but, yep. 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 Yeah. So we're going to also do something at Michigan because that was a really important uh, location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, what can I say? She She put me in contact with so many people. Um, and you know, she was like the clearinghouse too. And so anytime that I reached out to someone on my own, they reached out to her. It's like, it's this, <laughs> so, I mean, it was, she opened so many doors, she opened so many doors and, you know, there's still more work to be done around that because the archives have to go somewhere. And so this is something that we're actively yeah. thinking yeah. about. Uh, what's the best place uh, for those archives? There's also another book in there. There's another book of essays oh, in there. Um, so yeah, the oh, book oh, that came out goodness, okay. in, in from Pluto Press, um, that was half of what what it could have been. So yeah. wow. So there's another book of, of unpublished essays of it that that might that might come out of it. Um, but it's just the character piece, right? The character piece only comes through if you either know him or read in the uh, or spent time in the archives. Mm-hmm. Um, then of course. You know, his students have been very, very influential for me, but very important in terms of their support. Um, I say this all the time, like, I probably would be hating if somebody wrote something about my professors and my teachers. There's a sensibility, right? There's a very... Yeah. When someone is is so important uh, to you in a way that he was important to people, right? Not just anybody can write about that, you know? And we see what happens when people do it on their own. Um, I'm not going to call out any names, but there's certain biographies that like, you're not in community with the people who produced this person. You're writing this biography for you as a writer. And that's a di- there's a difference. And I didn't want to fall into that, to that trap. So it was to the students' credit that they were just able to embrace me Welcome me, which I think is also something that they learned from Robinson. So, mm. yeah. So, 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 Josh, on that point, how does it feel to, to you know, I guess now reflecting on that as you speak, how does that make you feel knowing that, you know, you had this particular blessing? Like, how does that, not only from, of, from Elizabeth, yeah. like, how, how does that make you feel, man? It took a lot of the anxiety away. Um it, it it made me it, it allowed me to be free and clear as a writer. You know that even if I say something that's off, that I will be corrected in love, right? So that just a lot of the stuff evaporates and allowed it, it allowed the writing to flourish in a different way because I'm not thinking about that anymore, right? I'm thinking about something else. So um, that that weight, you know, was removed. So it, it, it's, it's, it was an important step for me. 
um, you know. And after I got, so it's funny. I started writing summer 2019. I'm only two chapters in by the end of the year. From the end of the year till the start of the pandemic, I'm two and a half chapters in. By the time I get to the trip to California, I'm probably four and a half. From California to October, the rest of the book comes. It came easy because of what happened on that trip. So it was just another, it's another important moment in the development of, of a text, right? Um, and every text has its own biography too. And in the biography of this text, the moment of going out to California completely transforms what happens. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and th and that to me is just really important man because just trying to you know i i love doing these interviews man you're you're i think number 96 mm -hmm. uh, out of them all and, and you know one of the things i really enjoy is, is actually just what you said like the the biography of the book mm -hmm. right and, and the biography of the the person writing the book as well mm -hmm. and so I, so I really appreciate um, you letting us know. And also, man, we might need some extra time on this. I told you about an hour and a half. I got so many more questions, man. So, so, so you yeah. got, yeah. It's funny too because I go to I go to Southern California in August of 2020, but I go to Northern California in December of 2019, mm -hmm. and I'm piecing together Cedric's early life from Robin's research. And, so, and from a very limited understanding of what's happening in Berkeley. You know, shout out to Donna Murch's book, Living for the City. Um, the only book that has any extended treatment of the Afro-American Association. I have one piece of an archive from Cedric's trip to uh, Southern Africa, 1962. But other than that, I have really nothing. I make one call to Mike Miller, a SNCC veteran. Um, I think it's Friends of SNCC in Northern California. He opens the door up to the whole free speech, Slate, Bay Area <laughs> student movement. And I get in contact with Margot Dashiel. Margot Dashiel is 
Cedric's girlfriend from college. She hadn't talked about Cedric in depth for over 50 years before I, before I talked to her. Now, she goes on to do the great things herself. Um, she was a professor. Um, she ends up uh, creating, I think it's called Frederick Douglass Paper. I'm an African-American greeting cards company. Um, she is also close to uh, Shamala Gopalan, Kamala Harris's mom. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that we can talk about in terms of Margot. Um, you know, it's very true. They did start doing Kwanzaa celebrations in the 60s. But anyway, um, she then is able to talk about the personal in a way that I would have never gotten from any kind of archive, any kind of newspaper article. Because he wrote, said he wrote a couple of newspaper articles too um, in the early 60s. One of my favorites when he's talking about Robert F. Williams in the Daily Californian in 1961. Um, he wrote for Carlson Goodlist, Sun Reporter, uh, when he came back from Southern Africa. But Margot, Black women are amazing. She has, she has the letters that he wrote her when he was in South Africa, Southern Africa. These letters were written in 1962. She had preserved those letters. She was waiting on me, <laughs> even though she didn't know that. And so those quotes from the book where He's talking about being in Africa, where he's talking about, you know, after he gets drafted, about what he wants to do with his life. All of those, that texture, that beauty comes from those letters, which Margot agreed to let me use in full. So I don't, I don't know what this book feels like without that. You know? Um, by the way, she also is friends with um, Nebby Lou. Nebby Lou Crawford, daughter of Matt and Evelyn Crawford, friends of William and Louise Thompson Patterson, all of whom Cedric met by the time he was 22 years old. So there's a letter, or in her copy of Black Marxism, Marco's copy, there is a letter that I saw where he says, this book started when you introduced me to the Crawfords. The Crawfords, old school black communists in Bay Area in the 1920s and 30s. Um, you ever seen that book, Letters to Langston? Um, that's Neville Lou Crawford. And um, yeah, so that conversation with the, with the Crawfords, in many respects, um, he says, it begins with you. But also, if you look at the actual preface in the book, there's a list of names at the end of the preface. Donald Warden, Dwight Hopkins, Margot Dashiel, Shama Lagopalan, <laughs> Donald Harris. <laughs> Actually, I don't think, I don't know if Donald Harris is there or not, but definitely the, the mother is there, right? This book starts with them, right? 
So Frederick Douglass Lewis, Mary Agnes Lewis, and you know, ask me about Mary Agnes Lewis later. But <laughs> but this is a major part of what I mean when I say community and studying in the community, because black Marxism comes out of those conversations and discussions and debates as much as it comes out of the intellectual and academic context too. So there's that part in Margot's conversations with Margot in December 2019 uh, really helped to steer me in that particular direction. So I'm looking forward to going out, going back out to um, Northern California because we have to start to clock on black power a little bit earlier than 1966, which is what is done. So, uh oh, historiographical yeah. punch. Yeah, Let's do. Ooh, ooh, okay, okay. I'm excited about this, my brother. Man, no, nah, and that, you know, th- this is all just fascinating to me because just, just thinking about you, you said uh, 22, and one of the fastest. Some, sometimes I had to go back to. Um, the beginning of the book or, or remember like when he was actually born because I'm thinking like damn how old is he and just thinking about when people talk about political education and you take that definition and apply it to the life of Cedric Robinson especially like you know pre-1970 shall we say just to put a, a, a arbitrary uh, a time gap that's that's wow that, that's just you know, just being able to travel and also just thinking about, you know, how did he get to uh, uh, Southern Rhodesia? How did he, you know, get to, you know, the these different areas and also, you know, those early trips being so foundational to his understanding of what it means to be African, which I found, you know, because, you know, we often have, um, and I think there was a segment in the book about um, what it means to like the 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 turn towards African American and the and the different naming conventions of of, uh, of black folks in the United States, and it, it just reminds me of just the importance of those debates, but also sometimes what we what we lose and the actual continent, and and also thinking about me, myself, my own education in terms of like how many classes just specifically on or and or about. Uh, the continent have actually read um in and this is going back to my time at fam um when when i was an undergrad in in history um more reading shall we say right. is, is 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 especially for me writing my dissertation um, yeah and this is why margo was important because margo talked to me about pan-african consciousness in the 1950s in oakland in the early 1960s and what happens is that there's maybe 200 at most African-Americans at the University of California, which is absurd because it's in California, but and it's the flagship, right? But there's another maybe 50 or so students from Kenya. These are Kennedy Airlift students, right? Which is kind of back in the news again. But um, these Kennedy Airlift, Margot's parents host them at her house. Because Margot's family is, is old school Oakland, just like Neil Irvin Painter, who's also in the book. Um, they host it and they're having conversations about the Mau Mau and or the Kenyan Land of Freedom Party. And they're having conversations about anti-colonial resistance. And so Robinson and them, they want to learn more, right? They know about 
Sharpeville massacre. In fact, there's a quote in the book that says that's when Cedric lost his religion. You heard about the Sharpeville massacre. Um, there's also the question of Cuba. And so they're thinking about these things in tandem, Kenya, Cuba, South Africa. So he takes any chance he can get to get to Africa. He wants to go to Cuba too, right? He, he, he ends up trying to go to Cuba. Um, he does go to Mexico. And in 62, he wants to go to Africa. And in Africa, you know, that becomes something that's consistent in his life. Robin says that, you know, we could talk, we could write a book about him being an Africanist. Um, because it's a heavy, it's a heavy thing. And something that Nell Painter told me, you know, she's a she's I think she's in the same class as Cedric at Berkeley. Um, she told me that they all changed their majors to anthropology because that was the one place in Berkeley's curriculum where you would encounter non-white people. Now, the perspective may not be may have been the greatest perspective, but it's the only place where you get it. So they they went, that's where they went. He had no special love for anthropology, but at least here I can encounter something, some, you know, text, some reading, some article where it's not white people being talked about. Imagine that being, you know, your only route towards the curriculum that looks something like black studies, right? And so Black Studies, he argues in his little speech that he gave in 1986 at Berkeley, he says, we created Black Studies in the coffee houses, in the libraries, in right, in those places where we're taking books out of the library, we're finding old books in the bookstores, out of print, you know, used bookstores, and we're putting together Black Studies programs literally in the interstices of the university. So when he goes to Africa, the world opens up, right? People think of Africa as narrowing the conversation. Actually, <laughs> Africa literally opens up the world for him. And so now I got a lens. Now I can see. Now I can see Berkeley and Oakland because I've been to Africa. Mm-hmm. And that actually makes me think also about... Um you know, in, in the field of African-American history, thinking about um, the recent iteration of Black internationalism, right? And thinking about what are the terms that someone would have to meet to be considered Black internationalist, like someone, you know, as, as a subject. And what you just made me think about was also just how, um, where would in in the particular conventions of of the historiography now where where robinson's own life and travels and interactions because you know talking about race and class and his you know his stops in, in brighton um and and in and in the uk just generally um along with with the continent and all around I, i'd be very interested to know where where folks in that conversation fit especially because the constant question is you know, in terms of like that historiographic question is what, like, is this a new iteration where, where, you know, how far does this go? And, and, you know, and then you get to see job uh, ads, which is a whole uh, another um, conversation that goes back to what you were saying about, um, uh, you know, the discipline of black studies and who gets to actually do it. And what about those degrees, which I know is a perennial discussion uh, amongst folks I see on, on online for sure. Well, I think internationalism, it depends on what genealogy you're using, right? 
So certainly, um, if you start with like William Thompson Pat, or not start with, but if you look at William Thompson Patterson, um, I mean Louise Thompson Patterson and William Patterson, the Pattersons, <laughs> um, in their era, obviously you're internationalist because you want to make links to radical communist movements, right? But if you t- start or continue with, um let's say Kenny Freeman, a name that's not well known, Ken, uh, Amadou Freeman, who um, is in Mexico with Cedric. He comes back and is revolutionary black nationalist, right? In other words, there is a way to connect internationalism to many different other or underlying ideological perspectives. For me, Robinson is closer to Pan-Africanism as the starting point for internationalist politics. So it is it is the African struggle that allows him to have solidarity solidaristic connections to Central America, for instance, to Iran, for instance. Um, it starts with Africa for him. And in that sense, you know, whether you're talking about um, ITA Wallace Johnson and George Padmore and people of that era, or if you're talking about um, the Freedom Ways Collective, um, people of that era in the early 1960s, the Ernest Kaisers and the John Henry Clarks and the Lorraine Hansberries of the world, or if you're talking about Bay Area and the Afro-American Association, the Revolutionary Action Movement, there was a clear emphasis on radicalism that also is connected to anti-colonialism and Pan-Africanism as the routes towards an internationalist consciousness. And it is also a route towards a deep, deep, deep criticism of the American state. And that becomes something in the 80s and the 90s that I think Robinson extends very beautifully. Um, he connects, you know, a criticism of American exceptionalism and American, uh, the corp- American corporate media to the devastating impacts of war and quote unquote terrorism and things and things that are happening in the neoliberal era. But to me, it's the Pan-Africanism that shines, um, that shines this light, right? Um, in 1995, he participates in the 50th anniversary of the Manchester Congress in London, in uh, England. And you know, I don't know. I'm sure that the, there's archives of this in England, but Robinson's paper that he delivers there is called "In Search of a Pan-African Commonwealth." I teach that paper every fall semester in my Black Thought and Diaspora course because in that paper, he's delegitimizing the notion that Pan-Africanism or even internationalism can somehow be connected to the maintenance of nations and the maintenance of nation states. This is a radical prospect, right? Because he argues that the nation state is inherently invested with middle-class apprehensions and interests. And even in the context of 
nation states that are that are born out of colonialism. The fact that they are dominated by middle class apprehensions and interests makes them what he calls an undeserving vehicle for African liberation. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you connect it back to what he argues about political science. Right. right. <laughs> so it's it's certainly connected to the broad, broad idea of internationalism, but to me without without an understanding of his, his relationship to Africa and Africanism, you may not get the full consideration of what he means and what he's trying to say. Mm. And, you know, I, to, to, to stay actually in the Bay Area uh, a bit, um, I did have a question in terms of, you had said that uh, the the Sharpeville uh, massacre was, I believe, what... Uh, Robinson said uh, made him lose his religion. So let's talk about the, the the time that predated that that event. So through the early portions of your biography, we learn about Robinson's uh, Christian upbringing in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and in particular um, his uh, Seventh Day Adventist. It's it's very funny. I've been saying Seven Day and not Seventh my whole mm-hmm. life. So this is actually very funny. Mm-hmm. So thank you for for correcting me, though you might not have been <laughs> doing that intentionally. So. Um, so, so how did Cedric's Seventh Day Adventist background shape his approach to the concept of study and also a community as well? Wow, this is Margot again. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> she was able to give me a sense, another sense of who his grandparents were. Um, so, Winston Whiteside, sometimes known as Cap, Cedric called him Daddy. Cecilia Whiteside, uh, Mama Du. Um, at some point, I think they started out as Baptists, but they convert to uh, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And with Margot talking to another important figure, um, huge figure in the Bay Area, Paul Cobb. Paul Cobb was also SDA. And one of the things that was clarified for me is that in that in that tradition, study, Bible study, was extremely, extremely critical to the perpetuation of that church and the development of young people in that church. And so what Cobb and Dashiel said is that that translated into individual success in school for the SDA children. Now, I can't demonstrate that thesis because I haven't studied that particular question, but it's it's true that Robinson ends up being someone who excelled um, in school and, you know, preserved in his archives is a short story that he wrote, and I'm going to get the grade wrong, 10th grade maybe? It's in the book, maybe ninth to tenth grade. Actually, let's do the math. It was right at the Emmett Till. So he was born in nineteen forty, Emmett Till nineteen fifty five. This would have been eleventh grade then. He wrote a short story inspired by the killing of Emmett Till, but he wrote it from the perspective of an elder, a black male elder. What do you do if you're supposed to be an elder? charged with protecting young men, young people in the South. 
that to 11th me, eleventh grade. Like, yeah, eleventh, eleventh grade, man. So it's funny. It's wild that maybe not funny. I keep saying it's funny. I'm saying that in the ebonics way, I guess, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we say it's funny, but it'll be funny. You know, it's funny, but it's interesting that his trajectory doesn't end up, at least openly, the trajectory of most black kids. At least we don't have evidence of it. I mean, he was forced to take, take to uh, take a shop class. Um, I do. I have his Berkeley High transcript. Um, so he was forced to take a. You you really got down <laughs> to the archives, man. You you really well, that one was got... easy because Berkeley High is so pres- yeah. quote unquote prestigious. They kept they kept stuff. So all it took was a phone call, um, phone gotcha, call to gotcha. get his transcript. <laughs> but he, I mean, why is he taking shop class? Well, black kids at Berkeley are being tracked. There's a whole um, investigation of tracking of black kids, not just in Berkeley, but in the whole Bay Area. Um, and so I, I, I forget the name of the report, but I'm, I'm reading this and looking at what's happening. Then you see the development and then Donna Murch's work is important here too, living for the city. You see the development of the California Youth Authority, this sort of landscape of mass imprisonment that's being developed. Um, and most kids in the Bay are caught up in the system. I learned later that Cedric's cousins caught up in the system but somehow his appetite for study protects him from this from a lot of this stuff and that's not because it was designed to do that right it just so happened that it just so happened to be that way right as you know we say we say down south somebody prayed for him had him on their mind (laughs) took their time real man and prayed for him that protection they prayed so hard that he ended up Graduating from Berkeley, then going to the University of California, Berkeley. And so part of it, you know, this is pure speculation based on what I know about black people. I think part of his life was trying to return that favor or return that that grace. Right? Yeah. yeah. It, it didn't become a, you know, I'm the representative Negro. It became, okay, how do I return the grace? How do I write about mm. the people who made me? So that would be very much in, ingrained in the spiritual traditions of the SDAs. Mm. And it also just makes me think about like the importance, like like if we were to like like you just said, reframe or or provide a, a frame to understand Robinson through the lens of return returning what his community gave him now that is an ethic that to me i feel like many of us share right actually you actually um the the pin tweet on on your twitter is of your ancestors that grounds you in the soil of south carolina um and so to me, like that, that to me is just actually, that was the way I actually first met you was actually through that pin tweet. I was like, Oh snap, South Carolina in the house. Um, and so it's, it's just really profound. And, and, and I appreciate that, that frame to, to provide folks, which, you know, not saying it's an authentic thought, like, you know, first time of course, but 
um, at least for me as someone who, although I haven't really read, I'll, I'll be honest to, to the listeners and to you, I think I've told you this before, but, you know, like I said, I'm not um, someone who is necessarily well-versed on Robinson, but through reading your biography, I actually appreciate reading the, actually the biography first as a way to kind of orient myself to kind of to, to understand the context because for me whether it's the bible whether it's no matter what text it is i like to know the context at which it was produced because then it can actually for me personally give me a i think a, a greater appreciation um of of all that in that 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 was built in the book which you're not necessarily going to get just from reading the book from cover to cover or, or any book of his necessarily cover to cover And speaking of one of those books, um, you know, the only the 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 first in the the, the introduction I have to uh, Robinson was actually uh, his book that was published in 2007, Forgeries of Memory and Meaning: Blacks and the Regimes of Race in American Theater and Film Before World War II. And you know, I've I've read that uh, because I was writing um, a graduate uh, school paper on, um, it was a film and historical representation. And um, I was writing um, about uh, Within Our Gates, which I was so happy to have actually found because it's literally one of my favorite films um, of all time. And through your biography, we also find out about Robinson's fascination with cinema, film, and, and, and the entire enterprise of it all. And so can you actually discuss that particular fascination with the medium and also what Robinson believed the medium expressed about many of the broader themes of his work going back to the beginning to, to 2007. Yes. Well, I would say if your listeners, if the listeners have made it this far, <laughs> please, please pay attention to this next line because forgeries of memory and meaning is just as important as any of his other works. It is probably his magnum opus. It is probably his magnum opus in the sense that his whole life he was concerned with the question of what representation has to do with the maintenance of not only racism, but racism and capitalism together. Representation is Mm. not, (laughs) it is not innocent. It is not neutral. It comes out of a very particular context, and his whole thesis in Forges of Memory and Meaning is that film and theater have a job to do. Film and theater have to maintain the fiction of racial inferiority as that fiction is being challenged constantly by Black self-activity. In other words, when we move, they move. Hollywood has to be nimble. It has to incorporate. It has to take what we do and reframe it and remake it and repackage it it to us as an iteration of our inhumanity. And sometimes they do it so well, we end up accepting it. This is the sinister nature of representation. And Cedric Robinson Mm -hmm. traces it from the origins of really Shakespearean um, in theater in England all the way to the so-called golden age of Hollywood in the 1940s 
I think he was working on bringing it to the present. He does, of course, have a piece on black exploitation, really important piece. I think it's 1999 in Race and Class. But nobody will publish his critique of all the president's men. I read it. I, I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to read it. And he not only eviscerates the film, he eviscerates the inability of film critics to eviscerate the film. Ultimately, his, uh, <laughs> his argument, gotcha. yeah, his, yeah, his argument yeah, is yeah. that liberal film criticism is ill-equipped for understanding what Hollywood is up to. Now, if even the mm-hmm. film critics don't understand what they're doing, <laughs> what, yeah. how are we able, how are we ever going to understand? So he writes this book to help us. He writes this book, Forges the Memory and Meaning, to help us. And what I like about it is he talks about the radical responses. Oscar Michaud becomes a critical, critical, critical figure because he's creating a whole alternative film project. He's not creating alternative, he's not just creating good films. He's trying to create an, an alternative project for film. And you mm-hmm. see that continuing in very important ways. Who are the heirs of Oscar Michaud? That's the, that's the research question, right? Whew. And so he, he mm. talks about, of course, uh, Julie Dash and um, figures with regard to the LA Rebellion. He talks about other foreign films and how, you know, everybody doesn't, you know, tap their feet to the drums of Hollywood, not in the world, right? And so we have to have a wider, mm-hmm. expansive vision of what film is. And, you know, I'll just say personally, that book, alongside Clyde Taylor's The Mask of Art, changed how I engage film, right? Mm, okay. If it's from Hollywood, I'm already suspicious. Like, there's no way, there's no way Hollywood, <laughs> right? And so mm-hmm. I'm looking for what they say we should look for. I'm looking for how are they using representation. I'm looking for who the enemy is and who the villain is in the film and how that's connected to to someone Mm -hmm. who's probably against American imperialism, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm looking for how they're I'm I'm looking for how they're they're treating black community, right? Is it is it a question of of a black hero or is it a question of the black community? I'm looking for how are they dealing with questions of narrative and and of course the third the third uh, part of this trivium. (laughs) <laughs> is Haile Garima. And so I ended up spending way too much time talking to him. And so <laughs> there is no way that I could <laughs> ever accept without deep criticism a Hollywood representation of a Black person or a Black community or a Black history because of these three <laughs> influences in my own life. Um, I'm yeah. always suspicious, but I'm also always looking for, all right, where's Julie Dash at? Right? Where is the people that are doing something completely different and what is their relationship to the machine. And so the name that he uses or the concept that Robinson uses is the racial regime. The racial regime is this nimble force that continuously recapitulates the idea that Africans have to be controlled, maintained, have to be disciplined, through representation. And to mm-hmm. me, that is, and I said this to um, Josh and Jay, the host of Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. Great podcast. Yeah, I told them that's more important than racial capitalism to me. The racial regime. Mm. 
Oh, okay. Duration okay. regime. Because okay. it talks about how this thing is moving, how it works, how it operates, how it continuously updates itself in ways that maintain this order. Not just the system, but the whole order. So that's what we should be looking for when we look at a film. Now, that being said, he was a fan of film too. So he he liked uh, some of his favorite movies. I think I think he liked um, the adaptation of Walter uh, Mosley's was it Devil in the Dress? Um, one of his one of his yep, favorite yep. films. He liked Daughters of the Dust um, by Dash. I keep mentioning Dash. I hope your listeners have seen that. Not go watch <laughs> Daughters of the Dash. Please, it, it's so yeah. <laughs> I mean, Such Daughters a great of the Dust. Film, man. <laughs> yeah. So please. Um, but there, he liked he liked films that broke out of this. And so every now and then, a film will break out of it, and sometimes they mess up, and they give it a theatrical release. And so when that happened, Robinson would say, all right, students, look at this. Go watch that. Or he would screen it in class or teach it. And that became the way that he brings this into his practice. And then finally, I would say that this goes all the way back to his undergraduate days, probably his high school days. Um, In terms of who he was as a person, quote, unquote, leisure time, he liked jazz music and he liked going to the movies. <laughs> so, <laughs> which ironically sounds like our guest on today, Dr. Joshua Myers. Oh my gosh! So, as an undergrad, he would go to the foreign film theater and he would look at the look at the alternatives to what Hollywood was doing. And he would study that. So, he begins to write about it in the seventies, but he finally completes. Through, and he also has the Black Film Society at Michigan where they will watch black films exclusively. But by the time you get to the 2000s, um, he's finally able to sit down and finish this project, Portraits of Memory and Meaning. Like I said, there's going to be, I believe there's going to be a part two um, before his transition. So, Whew, Yeah, man, that, oh man, I, I got to go back. I, I think one of the good part, one of the best parts about this interview is just like realizing how much of his work, we're not even talking about black Marxism, but that is actually up freely available um, to 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 get. I, I'll buy the ones that I need. Is the the paper version is to me always superior, uh, but it just is really helpful um, because, like I said, as I'm writing my dissertation and kind of thinking about uh, the nature of uh, black women's resistance in the late 18th and early 19th century, um, th- th- there's so much to to pull from. Um, in terms of so much of the thoughts and the activities of um, of Robinson and, and, you know, so many of his works. And I, if I remember some things that you said before, uh, his work, uh, Terms of Order, um, is also one of those books that needs to be uh, grappled with as well. Um, and so uh, did I get you right on that oh, one? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I've argued um, that Terms of Order and Black Marxism got to be read together in many respects. Because when you look at what black people were were resisting, right, it was the whole order. Like I got, like I just said a few minutes ago, it's the whole order. It's not just, you know, somebody put their hands on me and I'm retaliating. It's no, I'm resisting the ability that you can put your hands on me in this particular mm. system and the whole architecture where you think that my humanity is less than yours. In other words, the whole order on which slavery was based on is what we were resisting. And 
you better understand that when you understand what the political is. And that's really where his dissertation in terms of order um, comes from. It's not it's not an easy book. But as Robin Kelly said, you know, if it's if it was all accessible, we would be free. <laughs> Shit. That's, that's that's real. That's real. So, so you know what, Josh? I have a question then on that, because I know that you convened, if I'm not mistaken, it was last summer um, with uh, one of your, I think I, I think it was, um, I think you convened with someone else uh, or a group of people uh, to actually study. Um, it was either a black Marxism or a set of, um, of Robinson's works. Didn't, was that last summer? This must have been at Sankofa, right? My, because I because I think that there was something that you had put on Twitter saying that if you want to study, um, it was like a kind of like a summer institute kind of thing. Yeah, actually, no, it was the one through Sankofa. You're right. Uh, it, you're right. Yeah. So basically, at Sankofa, Haile Garima, who I mentioned a few um, minutes ago, not only is a great filmmaker, but a great uh, and voracious reader and talker. <laughs> There was a moment where he got irritated with people talking about ideas but not having engaged texts around those ideas. For instance, I think somebody told him or may have said something along the lines of we don't have we don't have a class analysis in the black community. Now, as someone who reads, <laughs> that's offensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So um in the summer of 2019, he con- he convened a few of us to sort of offer how to read series, a how to read series. And so the first um, book that gotcha. we read was Black Marxism. And so How to Read Cedric Robinson was the first um, part of that. And so conceivably, it was kind of what we were saying earlier. People come with a, a section there, at least a section of the text read. And we we start the conversation with that with that with that with that understanding, um, as opposed to, you know, convening convening a space where that says, well, you should read this, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was convened as well. We've all read this now. Let's have a conversation. Let's so, return. Yeah. The next few uh, sessions were important. There was a how to read Tony Morrison. There was a how to read Tony K. Bambara. There was a how to read George Jackson and Francis Fanon. And then the pandemic hit. And so, <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. And, and the reason why I ask that is just because when you say read them together, and, and I know that you are um, definitely a fan of doing things in community, I, I was just trying to wonder, like, how would that actually work? It, as, as, a, as a teacher, how would you actually prescribe, um, you know, if you were to do this, let's just say outside of a classroom, mm-hmm. we'll say as, outside of your actual uh, courses and and I know one of your students, uh, Chad Graham. I know you're listening, brother. I hope you made it to to this part of the interview because I'm shouting you out there, brother. <laughs> Shout out to University of Delaware's uh, Department of Africana Studies as well, where, where he's doing his work. And so um, I've heard so much about your your ability to teach, but um, in terms of of uh, reading, terms of order, and Black Marxism together, um, how would you actually prescribe some of our listeners to actually do that? if they do not have a, a, the access to Josh Myers' formal classroom at Howard University? So it would, it would be maybe a two-step process. And I'm, just, I'm working this out as I answer the question. All right. Um, all right. You got the space. You got the space. <laughs> so the first step, I think, 
is take advantage of the new additions because the new additions have beautiful and effective forwards. In terms of order, the forward is written by Erica Edwards. It's so brilliant and necessary as a first step. And of course, um, in the new edition of Black Marxism, Robin Kelly updates his classic forward. And there's also a forward, a second forward by Damien Sojourner and Tiffany Willoughby Harrard, uh, two, of, two of Robinson's students. People tend to skip forwards, and I've never understood why. Um, but in For this real. case, you have to. You have to read those forwards because the context for the books are extremely, extremely critical, and the text itself is not going to give you the context unless you have the ability to read deeply between the lines, right? And we can't assume that everyone has enough of that context to be able to do that on their own, which is why the forwards are very instrumental. The second part of that step is when you read terms of order, the terms of order, you have to read it with a sense that is going to take a rereading. I think a lot of people start the text thinking that this is just a hurdle a temporary hurdle to get over so that I can have this book read. And it's not that kind of book. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a book that you would see on the, um, on the, uh, you know, bestsellers list where you just read it once on the airplane. And it's like, that's a nice story. No, nah, this book, it requires and rewards rereading. And so that first pass, what you need to be able to do is simply grasp the argument. And that's a simple thing to say, obviously. But you can't continue to study it if you don't know what he's trying to do. The second reading is, well, how does he go about demonstrating this particular argument, right? Who does he need in order to demonstrate this argument? And then that second reading, you're opening yourself up to the discourse that goes into this particular perspective because he's because he's writing against the grain, you got to know what the grain is, and then you have to know what the tools he's using are to go up against the grain, which means at some point, you're going to have to go to Max Weber. You're going to have to go to, right, um, Foucault, right? No. So that's why I, that's what I'm saying is that when you read it, it takes a very much more expansive commitment than, you know, this is just a book that I got to get over. Because it's not that. Black Marxism might be a little different in that respect because in some ways it's like two or three books in one, right? And mm -hmm. so... Part of my problem with how people approach Black Marxism is they are aware of that, but then they break up the book and say, well, I'm only going to read uh, part two because I'm interested in enslaved people's resistance. Well, that's all well and good, but then you can't claim to have grasped the concept of Black Marxism, right? 
or the concept that he's trying to, to put together. Or I'm going to only read the racial capitalism chapter and then think I understand what racial capitalism is, right? Well, you don't understand the argument of the book then, right? So I think that black Marxism requires um, another approach. The approach that I use in my own teaching is to read it in full, read everything, and then to sort of elaborate at every pass what he's trying to do, right? Because he's trying to do something different in chapter four than what he's doing in chapter three. And then, and sometimes they're not necessarily obviously connected. And so as, a, as someone who is researching this or someone who is studying this, the question that you have to ask is, okay, why this, why now? What's the connection? What is he trying to, to demonstrate? These are questions that you have to constantly ask as you're reading. And if you can answer those questions, you're on your way. But if you can't answer those questions, you're wasting your time. You're just caught, as, as, we, like, as we say, we said when I was growing up, you're not reading, you're calling words. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Stop calling words. Go to the text and try to figure out, okay, what is this trying to say? That takes time. It takes time. And that's something that I had to realize myself. Because um, as a grad student, you know how much we get, we have to read. We have five books a week, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then I realized, okay, look, if I can't read, if I can read five books a week and only retain information in one, then did I really read five books a week? Nope. And the other part about Cedric is, if you didn't read the footnotes, did you really read the book? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. the footnotes are another text. In many respects. Yep. So, how do you figure out how to take time to read is another part of this, right? And I'm inspired by the fact that, you know, people who were in unions read this book, Black Marxism. People who were in informal study groups read this book. People who were in all different walks of life read this book. So this ain't a question of whether or not, you know, it's too academic. It's a question of do you want to commit the time at the end of the day? And it's work. Like, sometimes we as readers don't want to do work. We think the writer's supposed to do all the work. Who said that before? I think Amani Amani Perry said that before. I was going to say, she, yeah. (laughs) Yep, yep, she did say that. I don't want to do the work. So it goes back to what Kelly's saying. If it was all so easy, (laughs) we would have been free a long time ago. Mm -hmm. See, that's good. That that's good. Um, that's a good way to think about it, and and also, you know, we all got Zoom and and in this space too, so we don't, you know, for for various reasons, have to even be, um, in the same space. And so you mentioned racial capitalism, so I'm actually gonna uh, move around in the questions real quick. So can you actually break down what racial capitalism is? And also, as a as a second question to that, what do you think the, shall we say what problems have you seen and can see happen with a term like racial capitalism that pretty much gets co-opted without actually being fully engaged? I mean, I think we're seeing it. I mean, it's like, this would be a good separate podcast, right? 
Oh yeah, we we might need to have a separate yeah. one in these next couple of weeks, uh, months, man. For sure. I think people like the term because it gives them a way to talk about what many people perceive anti-capitalist critique to be lacking. It's a shorthand for everybody that's mad that everybody's a class reductionist on the left these days, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I'm being, I'm using everybody like black people use everybody, so I don't mean everybody. Right. So let me be clear about that. <laughs> but class reductionism, for some reason, got in vogue. Um, maybe it has, this comes out of the Occupy movement. I don't know where it comes from, quite frankly. But all of a sudden, everybody was saying that you all are identity practicing identity politics and classes, the real antagonism that we are, you know, anti-capitalist and blah, 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 blah. And nobody ever said that wasn't true. (laughs) But people who need to have a rebuttal gravitated towards racial capitalism in a way that just gives them a shorthand, I think. And sometimes it's followed by, well, Reed Cedric Robinson or um, you know, engage this particular piece, but you know, I don't think Robinson was so concerned in the way that they were. I think what Robinson was doing with the term, and I've said this few few other places, he was trying to understand Western civilization, not just capitalism, and so. I only know of three or four places where he actually uses the word racial capitalism. It's not his theory. I mean, it's not something that he would have said, this is my contribution to the, to the world of, of scholarship. But it's somehow become that. And it's annoying to me. I mean, quite frankly, it's annoying to me. Yeah, hey, let, um, let, let the chopper <laughs> sing, as, as, as we say. Let the chopper sing, my brother. If you want to have a shorthand to talk about questions of race and the operation of the capitalist world system, have at it. But don't reduce Robinson's work to that question. Because ultimately, when you look at his usage, he is talking about the question of European civilization and how it creates modes of differentiation and weaponizes them to the detriment of everybody. If that's not the conversation, you don't need Cedric Robinson. And so, Mm. to me... It's a critique, as he says about Black Studies, Lucy L.R. James. This is a critique of Western civilization. In total. In total. And this very narrow conversation between different types of Marxists and different types of Marxisms is not concerned about critiquing Western civilization. They're trying to make it an anti-class civilization. Or, sorry, not not anti-class, well... They're trying to restructure the question of class within that civilization. And that's a noble goal. But you don't need Cedric Robinson for that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And if in fact Robinson speaks to that. He speaks to that in anthropology of Marxism. So that's on the abuses of it. What Robinson was ultimately arguing, though, in chapter one of Black Marxism, is that race does not necessarily come with the birth of capitalism that race preceded the birth of capitalism and it's it's something that was premised on how questions of hierarchy were developed 
And in that sense, you know, my next book, I sort of juxtapose that question of the, of the precedent for racism in Western civilization with the way that Sylvia Winter talks about this um, question in her analysis of the shift from a Christian humanism to a modern humanism. So in order to really grapple with um, the idea of where race comes from, one has to grapple with the practices of Christianity um, in the medieval period, the notion of those um, who have been, who, have, who are fallen and those who are saved or sanctified or blessed, right? These questions then become grafted on to those who are rational and those who are irrational, or those who possess land and those who don't <laughs> possess land. Ultimately, capitalism is born into those particular frames. And what Robinson um, ultimately argues is that the mere appearance of a merchant class and a profit uh, generating ethos in that merchant class in the market, right, doesn't negate the pre-existing hierarchies. It doesn't erase them. It simply uses them. That's that's why that's why the merchants then become the whites, right? It's the merchants in the aristocracy mm-hmm. now, right? Especially when you get to the United States, right? How do you become white? You become white by actually acquiring property, right? Property becomes the lens through which all of these different significations of race emerge. And the question of who is property and who can own property is what? A racial question. And Robinson would say, well, that's what European civilization is. That's what it is. Now, the difference is, is that those who perhaps want to evade Robinson will say that actually capitalists invented that hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to inherited, inherited it. it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, different verbs. Um, that's kind of where he was coming from. And again, the racial regime is a way for us to understand the unfolding of that inheritance, right? And that mm-hmm. gives us better language to talk about what I think people really want to talk about is how racial capitalism operates now. Well, it operates through this changing regime that I was talking about earlier, right? Sometimes we have to have Jim Crow. Sometimes that sometimes we have to get rid of Jim Crow, right? Jim Crow simply becomes a concession and a compromise, and ultimately it's remade in other in, in, in other ways, right? Why aren't people, for instance, in American North satisfied with the eradication of Jim Crow laws in the mid-1960s? Why are they still mad? Because the racial regime has moved on and created something worse. Mm-hmm. To them. To them, right. So that's something that I think has to be part of part of the conversation. The way that he uses the racial regime to talk about the dynamism of capitalist order. And so as we move to the final, I got I got about like five more questions. So, you know, just just <laughs> just to let you know. I ain't gonna keep you for too much longer, man. You, you're, this this is like oh man we ciphering big time man, um and so um moving more to it's still obviously within the confines of the book but um moving towards black studies as, as a as a space, um because you grapple a lot with um Robinson's 
discipline, uh, where, where he finds himself within different disciplines, political science, you know, uh, theory and, and even in certain ways, uh, historiography. Um, but, but for now, let's talk about black studies. What was it, Robinson's vision for black studies? His vision for black studies was, I think, complicated by the position that he was in. He was the director of the Center for Black Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And their structure was that they had a center and a department. The vision was to, of course, incorporate what the center and the department were doing. The center, if you look at the history of Black Studies at Santa Barbara, was supposed to be a communal arm. It reached back into the community of Black folk in Santa Barbara. Robinson ultimately practiced, practices that. Um, he's involved in the community very deeply. Um, the community is involved with the center very deeply. And the other part about what the center was doing was creating, I think, a postdoc and a pre-doc um, program for Black Studies folk, which is supposed to be the avenue through which faculty in the department were developed. Mm-hmm. But that never fully materializes in the way that it should have um like everywhere else um, black studies is under assault um and that relationship gets gets muddied intellectually of course uh robinson practices a form of what we call a discipline suicide um <laughs> meaning akin to cabral's class suicide he ceases to be a political scientist in, in any real way um now that sounds harsh, but <laughs> his intellectual development was not to perpetuate the self-referentiality or the self-actualization, however you want to say it, of the norm that the political system is the political system, which is what political science is based on. He could not in good faith practice such a science. So that's what I mean. Um, which meant that black studies became a way to critique not only the political, but to imagine alternatives to the political. And that was his intellectual relationship to the discipline. Now he is called in to be the chair of political science in 1987. And he accepts it largely because all the black students that are majoring in political science weren't getting what they needed to get. <laughs> so he does take that position and as soon as he takes that position, there's a fight. Um, it's another fight, right? He's fought, he's always fighting university. <laughs> there's a fight around um, a CIA officer being on the faculty in the department, right? An open that was a yeah, fascinating part of yeah, the book. An open CIA officer, right? They didn't hide it. They didn't even try to hide it. Um, there's also a fight around questions of uh, black studies and ethnic studies. Like I said, in the '80s, we weren't fighting to create departments we were fighting to make departments stable and have students take classes in the department and there's a fight at um santa barbara there around that question that leads to a hunger strike in 1989 and uh, robinson both robinsons cedric and elizabeth and gerard pigeon participate in that hunger strike um but he's participating as the chair of political science so it's very interesting um so there's that part. There's also um, at Santa Barbara, they're fighting for a graduate program. 
in African American studies, black studies at the same time, they don't get it. And so I actually have a proposal um, for that uh, program and you can kind of get a, gain a sense of, of a vision that Robinson participated in. I won't say it's his vision, um, but a re- vision that he participated in, in crafting in that particular area. And it's kind of what you were saying earlier. It's kind of using the internationalist lens, which was kind of represented on the faculty at that time. Um, I want to say uh, Claudine Michel is there, the Haitianist. Gerard Pigeon, who's a scholar of Francophone Af- African literature, is there. Um, mm-hmm. Gerald Horn's coming. He's not there yet. Um, oh, okay. okay. There are a few other people um, that they try to get. They try to get Manny Marable. They try to get um, June Jordan. Um, they try to get Angela Davis, I think. Um, yep. So there, yep. there's, there's this movement towards that, but I think Gerald Horn might be a great person to ask about this. They couldn't retain people. People just didn't want to stay. Um, and it had nothing to do with, it had very little to do with the department itself. There was something about Santa Barbara, I think. Um like like when so when you say like the the community or Well, among, uh, well, by the t- when they first got there, there was a black community. Today there's no longer a quote unquote black community. Um gentrification. Um and other yeah. and other pressures, and so now it's kind of like uh, upper middle class community in Santa Barbara. Um, I think June didn't want to didn't want to come because you know Northern California was much more <laughs> hospitable to her <laughs> lifestyle. Um, so she ends up mm-hmm. at University of California Berkeley as opposed to Santa Barbara. So I think that's, that's part of it. But Gerald could Gerald could speak to this. Um, so I think that was that was part of it, but I think you know ultimately the university doesn't support um, their grad their graduate proposal, and part of the reason has to be the radicalism. Um, you know, there's a multiculturalism fight, there's an ethnic studies fight. Um, I mean, the culture wars were very real in California, as I'm sure you know. Um, oh, yes. So the whole affirmative action issue. There's also the Shekinah issue that Robinson supports. Um, so all of those things put together, you know, they were just trying to, I think they wanted to remain, I think they wanted to keep Black Studies marginal. Um, and so, I mean, if you ask Elizabeth the same question, she would have more to say about how that relates to now too, you know, and since I, you know, I tell the truth. So hey, Santa do Barbara, it, do, do what you got to do. Santa Barbara has done very little to honor Cedric's legacy in the past several years. Mm. Not the city, the university. <laughs> right. right. So there's something to that, I think, in terms of what he envisioned for, on black studies and how the university incorporates or does not incorporate that. Mm. That's unfortunate to hear. Um, and what I'm about to ask you might also be unfortunate to yours as well. In terms of, you know, many people know this, but um, oftentimes I'm posting jobs and 
and I do that for for organizations and and such like that. So so I'm you know I'm I'm constantly monitoring um, jobs and that that come out and 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 looking at the language and putting them out on Twitter. So I'm interested to know your answer on this. What do you think about um, the 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 constant you know black uh, uh, assistant professor of of you know black studies with a uh, with a um, with a tenure line in history or you know how that mm-hmm. particular language goes mm-hmm. where you know it almost feels Africana black studies Afro American whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, derivation you're using, it almost feels like it's uh, just kind of like an additive, right? right? Not, you know, or reductionist in a way. So, so you know, and I'm sure you, and I've seen you talk about this intermittently, but um, to give you the space to talk about it here, what are your thoughts about this? Because I know it's not necessarily new, mm-hmm. but in this particular moment, what do you think, especially when, how were many of these jobs coming about? It's literally through the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and the list goes okay. on. What are your thoughts about this particular moment so, uh, that we find ourselves? So that's two different, two or three different issues. Let me start with the latter. Um, we all, and we have to be honest, we have all benefited from the white philanthropic largesse that has come mm-hmm. in the wake of 2020. And if you think you haven't, think again, <laughs> right? But certainly mm-hmm. there are those who market themselves to be the beneficiaries. And I think that's the distinction we need to make on that particular question, right? Because there's a way you can position yourself, right, to be the person that gets the money first, as opposed to the people who are down, you know, at the, at the lower getting the trickle-down effect, right? Um, but I think yeah. we all have benefited from it. And that's just the way that capitalism and philanthropy are joined together at the hip. Right. They can't afford to not pay in this particular sense. Right. Because they have to maintain control. And so the question is the same question that we had in the late 60s when Ford Foundation decided that they would somehow, you know, fund all the black studies programs. Some of us are going to take the money and laugh in the white people's face and it's like, hi, hi, OK, you think I'm going to do what you say? OK, fine. <laughs> and then do the same thing we were doing before. And then others are going to genuflect and say, thank you so much. How can I be of service? <laughs> and then they're going to get another check yeah. and another check and another check and then another, another check. And the rest of us are going to still be eating from the first check. If that, that's the distinction that we have to understand and make. Now to the other question, part of this, in fact, a lot of this is people trying to create opportunities in ways that make sense to their institutional home. But when you see it linked to a department, in other words, when you see a job ad that says, this is an opportunity in the Department of Africana Studies, and it also says, that the person will have an appointment in the department of X discipline. That's a direct assault against the institution, intellectual autonomy of Africana studies. It's a direct. Okay. Yep. And 
I'm clearly not the first person to say this. Look at the intellectual history of Africana studies. This is the exact thing that our predecessors warned against. How do you undermine black studies? You take away the capacity of us to hire our own. Because if they can have a joint appointment in the Department of History, you can be damn sure that somebody in the history department that ain't never studied black stuff is going to have a vote in that person getting a job. Yep. And that's not to pick on history because you can put any other discipline, sociology, anytime you see that, it's a direct assault against the autonomy. I would go a step further and say, even when you don't see that it's coming from a department, when there's an internal decision to hire a specialist in X, Y, Z area, it's an assault against the intellectual autonomy of Africana studies. Because it's implicitly saying that you have to have expertise in this particular area, sometimes an area that's conceived outside of in relation outside of black studies and in relationship to a quote unquote traditional discipline. It's saying that you have to have expertise in that area to be hired in the black studies department. At some point, we have to stand on our own intellectual tradition and say, we are hiring someone. We want someone who was grounded in black studies and that be enough. Mm. And we have to make sure that when we are training our students, that they know that they can make such a demand and be so and be so trained that that makes sense. But I think when you see this, you're also seeing people in charge of Black Studies programs who have no sense, no sense of the historical fight. And that's our fault. And it's not only our fault, but it's our fault because clearly we haven't been loud enough to say that our discipline has just as much integrity, in fact, more integrity in many respects than any other discipline. Because you're not going to see, even in a so-called area study or in a so-called interdiscipline, you're not going to see other people make such a decision. African studies is not going to say, please have a specialization. No, your specializations will be within African studies if there are any specializations at all. Right? Exactly, yeah. And so part of the problem, I think, is that our notion of what a specialization is is rooted not in the different components of Black studies, it's rooted in the logics of traditional disciplines. And so obviously there's diversity within black studies, but how do we name that diversity without defining ourselves in relationship to our enemies? And I'm very clear about that because when you look at, <laughs> when you look at what people were writing in the early moments, I think about Mac Jones, and I think about Joyce Ladner, I think about so many others. They were clear about who the enemy was. The enemy, the enemy were the peoples who said that black people can't study ourselves. 
And so mm-hmm. we can't define our project in ways that are legible to the enemy just because we feel that that will create some sense of stability for us. That compromise doesn't work. How do we know that it doesn't work? Because at every level, we are being encouraged to sacrifice the notion that black studies can be and should be autonomous. Mm. Ooh, we look, I'm, I'm look, if y'all made it to two hour plus mark, I'm look, first of all, congratulations. And second of all, I hope you get in your life right now because I certainly am. Um, I really appreciate that because I'm not going to lie. Like as someone, you know, I, I see a lot of jobs where, you know, uh, you know, there was a job I saw, um, at the university of Notre Dame. Um, and I think they're at Africana studies department. Um, for a historian of uh, slavery, but it's a, in the Africana studies space. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I always think about when I see those kinds of jobs are specifically as I move closer and closer to the time at which I'm putting applications out mm-hmm. there and thinking about, you know, what are they asking for? And also at the end of the day, my, the way my mind thinks is a foundations course. Right. I can I can teach a historical methods right. course because that's the discipline of which I've developed from. Mm-hmm. But in Africana studies, for instance, mm-hmm. do I have the capacity to learn? Of course I mm-hmm. do. Right. That's study. That's, that's, that's rooted in, 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 in a history within black studies, right? Because black studies hasn't always been where it is right. now, but now that it is what 50, 60 years later, in 2024, will I have the ability to teach an intro to Black studies, Africana studies, Afro-American, right. whatever derivation you're right. using? So, and that, to me, is the the foundational question. Absolutely. If you can't, if you can't, and the grounding question, really, yeah, if too. You can't teach intro. What are we doing, right? Um, let me just revise something that I said about African studies. It's true that African okay. studies will have uh, specializations in the traditional disciplines. The problem with saying that that's synonymous with what black studies is is doing is then it reduces black studies to an area studies discipline, which means it reduces black studies to the same intellectual and institutional context that led to the birth of area studies. And it's just not true. Black studies doesn't come out of that institutional context, which means that in many respects, whether it's African studies or any quote unquote area studies, you can't compare the thrust of Africana studies to those other areas, which means that even even to institutional eyes, it's hard to make that distinction, right? Because they see African studies, okay, that just means in America. No, <laughs> it means right. a different orientation entirely. I think people like Paul Zelaya have been writing about how to sort of bring these things back together because ultimately black people do create African studies. They just don't acknowledge that. Right, they start with Melvin Herskovitz and then leave out every every black person that's studying Africa before him. As you as you start mm-hmm. with William Leo Hansberry, you won't have the problem exactly. with the CIA and never mind. I'm not getting to that part, but <laughs> I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I do. I, I I saw the. I saw it. I saw it. I'm glad you 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 hit your you hit your dunk on that one because I know you're athlete. You know you talk about that too. And you you be dunking on it. Yeah, you just did it's just it right not there. an apt comparison, right? Nobody. No, 
I mean, it's 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 almost as if institutions, administrators think that they could maintain black studies without maintaining the political baggage. And I think some of them believe that they have. And that's you know, we have we have black studies as the, the diversity add, um, the value add, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we've and we completely marginalized the political ethic that goes into this, which is an intellectual ethic. It's not just political, it's an intellectual ethic. So anytime you hear me ranting about black studies, it's because I hear ancestors who are like sitting on my shoulders saying, look, we didn't die for this. <laughs> right? It's almost like the only time we talk about the moral question of dying for struggle is about the right to vote. You know, some black people die for black studies. I mean, really. Mm-hmm. I think about the, I mean, I come from Orangeburg, the Orangeburg massacre. Those students, three students were yeah. killed, but... What's not what's left out is that there's a struggle for back studies involved in that moment in Orangeburg. Mm-hmm. I never knew that growing up. Oh, never for real? Knew that. I knew. Wow. Police killed three black kids. Okay, that's more. Yeah. Did I know about the consciousness that was happening? The African American studies push? No. No. Wow. And so when did you find? When, when did you learn that? If you don't, I was in grad school before I learned. That element of it. Wow. That element of it. So, I mean, the notion that they, that people didn't ble- that didn't bleed for this, right? We have to have the same type of moral code uh, when it comes to maintaining and preserving what Black Studies is about. I mean, it's the amount of sacrifice, you know? The amount of people who died penniless, because they didn't want to give up the integrity of this thing, right? And so that's that's what I feel, you know, when someone says, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, I read the 1619 Project, and therefore I can teach a survey course in African-American studies. Let's do it. It's like, no, you can't, <laughs> right? Nope. <laughs> you can't. And what happens to the students that are expecting – I mean, 2020 was was interesting in, in this respect. Our students came to my intro course in African American Studies expecting something from me. Hmm. Okay. They expected clarity. They expected a sense of what they yeah. could do next. They expect. If all you read was this one book and think that this, or if all you took was this one class and think that, no, this is this is a a whole way of thinking. And I, I talked to graduate students in, in Black Studies who have taken courses from people who don't have the grounding in Black Studies. And for those who know the difference, they can feel it. They can feel that, okay, this person is just teaching me about their specialization. They don't ha- they're not teaching me Black Studies. That's fine. I need to learn that too. But I come to Black Studies for something else. So we have a lot of work to do. I mean, that's, I guess that's the real point. We have to make sure that we continue to be aware, but also continue to force ourselves into the conversation about defining and maintaining, not a standard, but just a way. Like, one listening yeah. talks about, we ain't trying to, we ain't trying to just give you the, give you the only way that you can do this. This is just a guide, <laughs> right? But we don't, we don't even mm-hmm. have that. You can get black studies in so many different ways um, that, dishonor in many respects that poly, hmm. that political and ethical 
insurgents. So we got to do better. We have to do better. And I think that's important in terms of trying to think about, you know, you see these depart, you know, these programs turning into departments and, you know, the fights within even some spaces. And I know that this, um, or I've heard about this in terms of, you know, some, you know, some uh, arts, uh, was it arts and sciences uh, colleges have uh, history departments that are PhD to grant, uh, granting, and then they have black studies uh, spaces that are only, you know, undergrad, mm-hmm. right? And, and what would happen if you do advance, uh, hint, hint, a program to have a PhD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not calling any ones in the, in the uh, nation's capital, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, but, you know, um, I, I have heard of some things like that. We don't that. have a PhD program um, at Howard because we don't have, we don't have the support of an of an administration that actually recognizes the integrity of black people. Let's be very clear about this. Mm. Okay, okay. And too often we have people who minimize or or, or don't, you know, want to challenge. We are in a time where HBCUs are so attractive to white capital and white philanthropy that we don't recognize that the cost of such an attraction is the literal reduction of black life to something that you can feel good and cute and representative about. That's, that's simply mm-hmm. enough for them. And so to actually have a critique to challenge something. Oh no. Oh no. We got to, we have to, you're a threat at that point. And so it's ironic to me that not a single dollar that has come into Howard University has been earmarked to having a graduate program in African-American studies if this is blood money from 2020, right? Because right. if they start supporting that, now they're directly supporting the, the threat to their existence. And so we get mm. money for cute stuff, right? We get money for shiny stuff. But there's not a single HBCU that has a PhD program in African American studies. And to be honest, and, and you know this, I come from FAMU, um, and I've been having uh, discussions with folks uh, back at FAM about trying to come back to teach, um, because I, uh, the the way our program works is that um, we have a department of Afri- uh, African American studies, history, and geography, and political science. So it's all, um, you know, they're they're not separate units. They're mm-hmm. all uh, amalgamated together and you know it, it made me just think about the fact that like to your point if you want to get a phd in in honestly most humanities but in particular you know if you if you want to go history you can only go um to howard or morgan state and i believe clark atlanta has a phd in the humanities with like sp- specializations that i think like public admin and and some other stuff, but it's not, you know, very specific, Mm -hmm. but to break it down to what you're saying, even, even closer uh, to to just African-American studies, you can get a master's in African-American studies at FM. I don't think you can get that. I think you get a master's in history at, at, uh, at NC central, but in terms of like, just like uh, a master's or PhDs elsewhere, it's it's just 
it's unfortunate. And I think Howard in particular is just a, a lightning rod for many of these conversations just because of, like you said, to be very specific, when Nicole Hannah-Jones comes and in the in the direct aftermath of that, you have that the the I think the letter on Medium.com that from from uh, from one of the uh, one of your one of the lecturers, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken, that goes and then you don't see any coverage, right? And from 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 her, and and it's not you know just to necessarily blame her per se uh, or Coates who comes with her, but it's just Howard is seen as a refuge for her and them when it's not a refuge for to use the Christian ethic of the least of these at the institution and, or, and also the people that make Howard run in terms of the actual like faculty and the, and the workers. Yeah. It's interesting because it's almost as if um, when they came, it was like nobody was here before. Right. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. you would never hear in that coverage that we have five PhDs and that have we have five people that have PhDs in African American studies in our department, <laughs> right? Five. Mm-hmm. There's no white school that has five PhDs in African American studies in one department. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. I mean, th- wow. there's there's so much that that can be said, and you know, I just want to take a few minutes or two few seconds I should say to honor those struggling for a fair contract um this struggle has been going on for so long I think four years um the non-tenure track faculty many of whom are Howard grads coming back to quote-unquote as they like to like as you know you like to say in the HBCU world coming back to serve (laughs) right exactly yep yep but are not giving a living wage not, you know, giving job security, not giving the things that they need to make ends meet and feel as if they're safe. So I just want to honor their struggle. And anyone who is safe from having to deal with that kind of job insecurity should at least have something to say in support of them, even if it's just a retweet, an acknowledgement that they exist, right? Because when it comes to the Mm -hmm. teaching, right, we know that they're the ones that are teaching three, four classes a semester, right? Yep. They're the ones teaching our students how to write. So when they come to us, we, we expect them to have some basics. But if you don't support the struggle of the people doing the teaching to give them the basics, how can you expect them to have the basics? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so solidarity, you know, is to me a starting point. I mean, we can think about the intellectual conversations. But if you don't have solidarity across the board, then you don't have anything. For sure. And, and also let me, let me also just let my hands be clean of this too. I I got some of that blood money. Like I, I was, a, uh, I worked, (laughs) look, 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 I'm just, I know I'm just, I'm just naming it. Right. Because, uh, you know, just to, to let the uh, record be known, I, I worked, um, as a research assistant on the 1619 project and or the yeah the 1619 project book and I did the um, uh, I did the um, uh, footnotes and all that for for folks which I, I think is also its own separate story that I can tell you uh, offline in terms of uh, 
so so some interesting uh things that i that i uh, recognized and noticed in that whole uh process but uh you know can't, can't tell all the secrets online <laughs> so we're gonna have to talk about that uh, offline yeah. but it's it was interesting shall we mm-hmm. say um but you know, because I, you know, I don't want to monopolize all your time. I got a, two more questions to do before we can get out okay. of here, man. Um, so now that the book is out, now you know you're doing the press run and everything for it. Take a step back and kind of just just think effectively here. What does Cedric Robinson mean to you, and what does this book also mean to you as well? And what it's and, and just just kind of. Think about the process and, and what the book means to you and also the people that you've come into contact with because of, of the book process. Uh, it means a great deal. It means a great deal. I think I didn't realize how much my life would be connected to this life. You know, um, it started off. I tell, mm-hmm. I tell the story a few times. It started off as a intellectual foray for me um and it became much more it became and i didn't expect this so it was it it hit me like a ton of bricks when it did happen um but it became akin to caring for an ancestor and so one thing that african Mm. people do is you know, we make sure that ancestors are taken care of, whether it's, you know, clear, clearing the clearing the grave, beautifying the grave, keeping their pictures in pristine shape, um, taking care of any personal effects, passing down what needs to be passed down. All of those things felt like what writing this book felt like. And it became that. It didn't start off that way. It became that. I think it became mm-hmm. that because, you know, it's a living tradition. It wasn't something that was dead. So it had this kind of life to it. And once I realized that that was what I was doing, then I said, as I said a few um, minutes ago, the words just kept coming. And when the words kept flowing, I knew that they were flowing from a, from a very important source. And that was the source. The source was literally the ancestral realm speaking back. Um, it's kind of where I started the book, where I started with the whole emphasis on the, the Bakongo. But there's also something I just want to read quickly. Um, Please do. Please from do. George Washington Williams. When he was writing his famous two-volume uh, History of the Negro Race in America from 1619 <laughs> to 1880, um, <laughs> that book was written in 1884, by the way. So he says, I have tracked my bleeding countrymen through the widely scattered documents of American history. I have listened to their groans, their clanking chains and melting prayers until the woes of a race and the agonies of centuries seem to crowd upon my soul as a bitter reality. Here's the, here's the important part. Many pages of this history have been blistered with my tears. Although having lived for but a while more than a generation, my mind feels as if it were cycles old. 
That's kind of how it feels to me. Hmm. Man, no, that's that that really gets to the point, man. And and as someone who's reading the book, I feel that. Um, whether it's certain, you know, flourishes in your writing, um, or it's some some of the footnotes even, um, as well, and some of the letters that you include, um, you know, this was a what they truly call in in, in the truest sense a labor of love. Um and 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 with that, I think that's a great way to to ask the final question in terms of of uh, of your love of music <laughs> and uh, Cedric's also love of music too. Yeah. So um so if you were to create and and please do if you if if you can if you were to do a Cedric Robinson the time of the Black Radical Tradition playlist. Uh. I was gonna say ten, but I'm just I'm just gonna let let if you got more, then let it go. But what songs would you put on this playlist for the oh people? Oh my goodness! So his favorite artist, from what I can tell and what I've heard, is Miles Davis. Um, so I guess you gotta have something from each of Miles's periods, huh? <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. you know, the birth of a cool era, you know, classic Miles Quartet era. Um, his version of So What from the Plugged, what is it the Plugged Nickel? I think it's called Club in Chicago, the live album. Probably is somewhere near the top. Um, mm-hmm. an extended version where he's playing with his classic. Uh, quintet. Um, Miles's "Bitches Brew." I would have in there. Um, his so I like. You know, Miles fans will probably get on me, but I like um, <laughs> what Miles was doing in the nineties, eighties, and nineties. My favorite. Um, from that era is his cover of Cindy Lauper's time at the time. It's so beautiful. Um, the way he, do, what he does with that song. Also human nature by Michael Jackson. He does beautiful things with that song as well. Um, so heavy on the miles. Um, in terms of what I was listening to. Um, yeah, definitely. Let's, let's when I was that. writing. Oh my goodness. So, in 2020, a number of important um, albums come out. And there's this really beautiful album by a really beautiful brother, beautiful spirit, um, called Omega by Emmanuel Wilkins. And on that album, which came out while I was in California in uh, Robinson's archives, it came out the Friday that I was in the archives there is a really, really beautiful suite um, of music that closes um, near the end of that album. And it just grabbed me and didn't let go. Um, But part four of that suite is called uh, Guarded Heart. Guarded Heart. And it's such an amazing uh, composition. but also on that album, he has a tribute to Mary Turner, um, 
the woman who was in one of the most famous photos of lynching. Um, mm. He has a piece called Ferguson, an American Tradition. Um, wow. There's a beautiful composition called The Dreamer. There's another beautiful composition called Grace and Mercy. And so I'm just thinking about where I was in 2020 and how this music, this modern jazz performer who's about 24 years old, was able to sort of situate himself in this um, arena. And so I would combine his work with some of Miles Davis's work uh, for a playlist. Well, first of all, I need to go, uh, you know, listen to him. And also, hold on. Didn't you just see him? Yeah, I did. He's on tour now for him. Yeah, I was going uh, Yeah. So he just came out with an album called The Seventh Hand, which is, is on another level. I got to shout this out because this brother has taken. Please do. The, he's taken the black church and he's made it legible to modern jazz. And in this particular album, hearing him explain what he's trying to do, he's taking the number seven, which is the number of completion in the Christian tradition. And he's he's written seven compositions. Well, he's actually written six compositions, and the seventh is a 26-minute long improvisation that comes out of how the band heard and responded to the other six compositions. And so this ethic of complete, of, of completion, but completion as a consequence of not only improvisation, but as a consequence of divinity manifesting in the space that you just called into existence. Now, as that comes into your ears in my explanation, imagine how that comes into your ears as music. So, the seventh hand. Wow. Really really beautiful brother, and he deserves all of our support. Well, hey, you know, with that that's amazing, man. And I'm I'm glad that you got to see it, uh see him in person because I know um I, matter of fact I live in Philly, so I'm gonna have to ask you about some of your recommendations on uh so, so some local spaces oh, sure. here. Um as as things start to to come open, man. And so uh Dr. Myers, as my mom would call you, Josh, I appreciate you for your time, man. And if you made it two and well, over two and a half hours, if you don't know who the hell this brother is, he is Dr. Joshua Myers, who is an associate professor in the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard. And he's been on to talk about his amazing new book, Cedric Robinson, The Time of the Black Radical Tradition, published by Polity Press. And please, y'all, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and review us with five stars. If you give us four stars, I'm, let me stop. Let me not be <laughs> Bomati Jones. Uh, uh, Mac Jones's son, if I'm not yes. mistaken, um, which is just like, which is just wild. Like, I, I literally... When I saw that, I was like, hold on, I know that ain't who I right. think it is, uh, to use a big boy reference. And lo and behold, yes, he is. Uh, and so I appreciate you so much for your time. And once again, y'all, please read us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And I am your host, Adam McNeil of New Books in African American Studies. And uh, looking forward to the next time y'all here, which will be my next episode with Dr. Jennifer Morgan about her brand new book, Reckoning with Slavery. Until next time, y'all. Adam McNeil, New Books in African American Studies, over and out. With the 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.